0: Hello and welcome to the July 21, 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with highlights of recently published material. Before I begin, I want to remind listeners that a publicly available collection of everything in annals related to the coronavirus pandemic is available at annals.org. The collection also includes links to Dynamed modules on COVID-19, a link to register to receive alerts of COVID 19 related articles from over 120 journals screened by the Evidence Based Medicine Group at McMaster University, and links to a collection of other COVID 19 related materials from the American College of Physicians. Now to the recent Annals articles. I'll begin with two research and reporting methods articles that are very relevant to some of the clinical studies on COVID 19 that are being reported. In studies comparing treatments, the treatment effect is often assessed using a binary yes-no outcome that indicates response to therapy. Commonly used summary measures for response include the cumulative and the current response rate at a specific time point. The current response rate is sometimes referred to as the probability of being in response, which regards a patient as a responder only if he or she has achieved and remains in response at that specific time. The methods utilized in practice for estimating these rates, however, may not be appropriate. Moreover, while an effective treatment is expected to achieve a rapid and sustained response, the response at a fixed time point does not provide information about the duration of response. As an alternate, one may consider a curve constructed from the current response rates over the entire study period, which can be used for visualizing how rapidly patients responded to therapy and how long the responses were sustained. The area under the probability of being in response curve is the mean duration of response. This connection between response and duration of response makes the curve an attractive method for assessing the treatment effect. In contrast to the conventional method for analyzing the duration of response data, which uses responders only, the above procedure includes all comers in the study. Though discussed extensively in the statistical literature, estimation of the current response rate curve has garnered little attention in the clinical literature. This article illustrates how to construct and analyze such a curve. The authors of the second research and reporting article note that clinical trials of treatments for COVID-19 draw intense public attention. Consequently, now more than ever, valid, transparent, and intuitive summaries of the treatment effects including efficacy and harm, are needed. In the recently published and ongoing randomized comparative trials evaluating new treatments for COVID-19, the time to a positive outcome, such as recovery or improvement, has repeatedly been used as either the primary or key secondary endpoint. However, since patients may die prior to recovery or improvement, the data analysis of this endpoint faces a competing risk problem. Commonly used survival techniques, such as the Kaplan-Meier method, are often not appropriate for such situations. Unfortunately, almost all trials have quantified treatment effects using the hazard ratio, which is difficult to interpret for a positive event, especially in the presence of competing risk. Using two recent trials evaluating treatments for COVID-19, remdesivir and convalescent plasma, as examples, The authors present a well-established yet underutilized procedure for estimating cumulative recovery or improvement rate curves. They show that this approach offers an intuitive and clinically interpretable summary of treatment efficacy in the presence of death as a competing risk. We encourage clinical investigators to consider applying these methods for quantifying the effects of promising COVID-19 treatments such as remdesivir or convalescent plasma in future studies. In the study report in the next article, researchers studied 11,066 patients at Johns Hopkins Hospital to examine the characteristics of SARS-CoV-2 antibodies and assess their clinical utility. Of the patients tested, 115 patients were hospitalized and investigated for COVID-19. Clinical record review was performed to classify the patient into a COVID-19 case group or non-COVID-19 control group. These groups were compared to a laboratory control group. The researchers found that antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 demonstrate infection when measured at least 14 days after symptom onset, associate with clinical severity, and provide valuable diagnostic support in patients who test negative by nucleic acid amplification tests on nasopharyngeal swabs, but remain clinically suspicious for COVID-19. Besides epidemiologic and therapeutic applications, the study shows the potential contribution of serology to COVID-19 diagnosis, which currently relies on integrating symptom surveillance, radiographic findings, and the results of nucleic acid amplification tests. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, primary care practices across the United States have transitioned from in-person visits to virtual visits. However, there is limited information regarding the facilitators and barriers to the implementation of such a transition. In the next article, researchers from Stanford University School of Medicine evaluated the short-term implications of rapid transition to video visits at Stanford Primary Care through qualitative interviews with key stakeholders and identified critical issues that need to be addressed to sustain video visits over the long term. Next, researchers from Weill Cornell set out to study the association between obesity and outcomes among a diverse cohort of 1,687 persons hospitalized with confirmed COVID-19 at two New York City hospitals. This study found that obesity was an independent risk factor for respiratory failure, but not for in-hospital mortality. The findings, at least in part, may explain the extensive use of invasive mechanical ventilation reported in the United States, where the prevalence of obesity is over 40%. The findings also suggest that risk conferred by obesity is similar across age, sex, and race. The authors urge consideration of the community prevalence of obesity when planning a community's COVID-19 response. Normally, regulatory T-cells, known as T-regulatory cells, or T-regs, migrate into inflamed tissues, dampening inflammatory responses. Patients with COVID-19 and acute respiratory distress syndrome have protracted hospitalizations characterized by excessive systemic inflammation, known as cytokine storm, and delayed lung repair, which is partly due to reduced or defective T-regs. Authors from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine described outcomes in two patients with COVID-19 and ARDS who were treated with Tregs. The authors are planning a multi-centered, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial of Tregs for ARDS associated with COVID-19. Albinuria is associated with future risk for death, kidney failure, and cardiovascular events. Measurement of urine-albumin-creatinine ratio is the preferred method to assess albinuria. However, many care providers check urine-protein-creatinine ratio or urine-dipstick protein instead. Annals published findings from an individual participant-based meta-analysis that studied 919,383 adults with same-day measures of albumin-creatinine ratio and protein-creatinine ratio or dipstick protein to develop equations for converting protein creatinine ratio and dipstick protein to albumin creatinine ratios and to test their diagnostic accuracy in CKD screening and staging. The authors found that predicted albumin creatinine ratio performed well in chronic kidney disease screening and staging as well as prognostically when used to predict the two year risk of kidney failure. These findings suggest that when albumin creatinine ratio measurement is not available in healthcare or research settings, Album creatinine ratio estimating equations, such as those reported in the study, may enhance both research and clinical care. In the next article, the United States Preventive Services Task Force describes their strategy for developing primary care-based recommendations that address the social determinants of health that affect access and quality of health care. Social conditions that adversely influence health and well-being in the U.S. population are referred to often as social determinants of health. Some of these factors are modifiable and some are not. Public health interventions exist for improving modifiable social determinants of health such as food insecurity, transportation difficulties, and interpersonal safety. There is also a growing body of evidence on instruments and practices to screen for and intervene on social determinants of health in clinical care settings. As such, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is assessing the role of these characteristics in primary care prevention recommendations. Task Force members describe the mission of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force highlight how social determinants of health are currently incorporated into U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendations for screening and prevention, and discuss a potential approach to address social determinants of health in their future recommendations. Next is a case report that demonstrates the potential of performing telesurgery over a 5G network. The authors from Genoa, Italy, describe a feasibility demonstration where robotic telemicrosurgery was performed on a cadaver's vocal cords with both sides of the system on wireless 5G networks. According to the authors, this demonstration suggests the potential feasibility of remote surgery both in everyday and emergency situations. The authors believe that this type of surgery has the potential for large-scale adoption. Unfortunately, there are patients who engage in behavior or use language that demeans clinicians based on their social identity traits, such as race, ethnicity, sex, disability, gender, and sexual orientation. Some patients even request that specific physicians not be involved in their care because of these identity traits. The next article explores the prevalence of this problem and strategies to address it. In an accompanying editorial, Drs. Christine Grady and Anina White write, quote, one of the highlights of the approach described in the article is the use of an ethical framework that considers factors about the patient who is acting in a biased way, attention to the patient's clinical stability, decision-making capacity, and reasons for behavior, end quote. A negative effect of electronic health records is that they tend to foster clinical notes that don't serve anyone particularly well. Next is a commentary by authors from the American College of Physicians' Restoring the Story Task Force. They describe the problems that ensue when templates that emphasize billability over interpretability replace cogent clinical summaries and offer some suggestions to improve the status of clinical notes in electronic health records. Next is a report of a randomized controlled trial that presents a chapter in the saga of hydroxychloroquine and COVID-19. While many studies have examined hospitalized patients with moderate to severe disease, this trial aimed to determine if there was a role for hydroxychloroquine in non-hospitalized patients. Researchers from the University of Minnesota hypothesized that starting hydroxychloroquine within the first few days of symptoms could alter the course of COVID-19 by reducing symptom severity, symptom duration, and preventing hospitalizations. They randomly assigned symptomatic non-hospitalized adults with lab-confirmed or probable COVID-19 to either oral hydroxychloroquine 800 mg once, followed by 600 mg in 6-8 to hours, then 600 mg daily for 4 more days, or a masked placebo. Of the 423 patients with available endpoint data, 82% had lab-confirmed infection and 56% were enrolled within one day of symptom starting. Change in symptom severity over 14 days did not differ between hydroxychloroquine and placebo groups. At 14 days, 24% of patients receiving hydroxychloroquine had ongoing symptoms compared with 30% receiving placebo a difference that was not statistically significant. Side effects were mild, but more common with hydroxychloroquine than with placebo. The researchers note that the study was limited by severe U.S. testing shortages. Only 58% of participants received SARS-CoV-2 testing, with the remainder having probable infection. The author of an accompanying editorial calls the saga of hydroxychloroquine and COVID a cautionary tale. Research standards, he believes, should not be lowered during a pandemic. These findings, taken together with other published randomized controlled trials, provide strong evidence that hydroxychloroquine offers no benefits in patients with mild illness. The editorials believes that the saga of hydroxychloroquine and COVID-19 will likely soon reach its end. Next is a case report of a volunteer blood donor who was healthy on the day of donation but had detectable SARS-CoV-2 RNA levels in the donor's blood at least 40 days after resolution of COVID-19-like symptoms. The donor had symptoms of upper respiratory infection in early March, including body aches and sore throat without fever. The donor did not seek medical attention and was not tested for SARS-CoV-2 at that time. After the donor was notified about the results and five days after the donation date, RT-PCR assay of the donor's nasopharyngeal swab specimen showed no SARS-CoV-2 RNA. According to the authors, the confirmation of SARS-CoV-2 RNA in donor blood more than one month after symptom resolution is concerning in light of current guidelines which do not recommend screening in the general allogeneic donor population. Although this case is insufficient to recommend universal SARS-CoV-2 blood screening, the authors say their institution will continue to do the screening. Next is a report of a randomized control trial of two antiplatelet therapies that found that a reduced dose of Prasugrel was as effective and associated with a reduced risk for bleeding compared with the standard dose of Trichogrelor for elderly or low-weight patients with acute coronary syndrome. Synthetic cannabinoids have been on the Canadian formulary for more than 20 years and are approved to treat chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. Providers may also choose to prescribe these drugs for off-label use to treat conditions such as chronic pain, sleep disturbances, and the behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. How much they are prescribed has not been widely known. In the next article, researchers from the University of Toronto report a study of linked healthcare databases in Ontario, Canada to describe yearly trends in synthetic cannabinoid prescriptions between 1997 and 2017 and the characteristics of persons to whom these drugs were dispensed in 2017. The data showed a 3.7-fold increase in use between 2012 and 2017. Persons prescribed the drugs were older adults with multiple comorbidities who are concurrently receiving a median of seven drugs, including several other psychoactive medications. According to the study authors, these drugs are being prescribed with limited evidence for benefit and largely unknown harms. The authors suggest that increasing use may reflect a broader societal acceptance of cannabis, especially in jurisdictions such as Canada, where recreational cannabis use is legal. Next is a Medicine and Public Issues article about institutional review boards. Evaluating the quality and effectiveness of the institutional review boards responsible for overseeing research involving human participants is critically important, but perpetually challenging. A group of U.S. Senators has recently raised questions about the increasing use of for-profit IRBs to review research proposals, as opposed to IRBs typically housed at academic medical centers and healthcare institutions and more specifically, the growing trend of private equity ownership and consolidation of for-profit institutional review boards. The authors of the article in Annals believe that the private equity model is particularly susceptible to approaches that could undercut the ethical mission of IRBs to protect and promote the rights and welfare of research participants. On July 21st, we published two ideas and opinions commentaries. The first one compares typical hospital stays to enhanced interrogation. At first you might think the analogy is forced, but read the article and you may change your mind. The second July 21st commentary is about point of care ultrasound in the primary care setting. Advocates of point of care ultrasound in the primary care setting view it as a means to improve quality of care by increasing diagnostic accuracy, decreasing time to diagnosis, and decreasing costs through obviation of the need for further testing, imaging, and subspecialist evaluation. As its proponents point out, point-of-care ultrasound offers the outpatient generalist and their patients many potential benefits. However, the author of the commentary believes that its integration into primary care warrants caution as important differences exist between primary care and other settings where this intervention is used, and a less substantial body of evidence supports its use in primary care. July twenty-first also brings the latest episode of the Annals Consult Guides. This month, the consult guides discuss coronary calcium scores. And the latest Annals on Call podcast discusses the anemia of inflammation. Finally, in addition to highlights of articles of particular interest to those who practice hospital medicine, this month's Annals for Hospitalists inpatient notes commentary addresses appropriate management of asymptomatic bacteria in hospitalized patients. That's all for this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope I've piqued your interest enough in some of Annals' new content that you'll go to Annals.org to take a closer look. Until our next podcast, stay well. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.